welcome to episode 264 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was published on Saturday, 16th of January, 2021. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Happy New Year and welcome to the first episode of 2021. I'm Carlton Reed, and the next few shows are going to have a distinctly American flavour, starting with today's guests, Kyle Wagenschutz and Sarah Studdard of People for Bikes, the US Bicycle Advocacy Organisation. This is an hour-long show in which we talk bike lanes, mobility motivations, Mayor Pete's high-profile potential impact on transportation, and you'll also get a sneak preview of People for Bikes' report on US pandemic cycling trends, which actually goes live on January 21st. I'm here today with, with Kyle and Sarah, and, and before we get into who you are, describe what you do for People for Bikes and what is People for Bikes. For people who 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 don't know what this US organization is, and I guess lots of people in the US will absolutely know what it is, but explain it for the rest of us. What is People for Bikes and where does it come from? Because it's got an interesting, an interesting backstory. Yeah, certainly. Thank you. And People for Bikes is a US-based bicycling advocacy organization that has been uh, around since 1998. So we we just celebrated moving past the 20-year mark as an organization. And we have used that time and our presence and influence here in the U.S. to continue to advance policies that make bicycling better for people every day in the U.S. And that most of our support, um, a large base and center of our support actually comes from the U.S.-based bicycling industry, so manufacturers and suppliers of bicycles, bicycle components, and adjacent bicycle parts contribute, uh, are members of our program, and we act as both a trade association acting on their behalf in matters of business and trade, import and export, um, and then we also act as a, as a charitable foundation um, a, a, almost like a traditional nonprofit organization that would um, help local communities enact and be able to activate on those locally based projects. So that's what I meant, Kyle. When I said you had an interesting backstory, it was it's industry funded and it's come uh, from the industry as an industry initiative. And that's always and it has been for an awful long time is the industry should be doing more to get bums on bikes. And here there's an organization that's absolutely, that's, that's its raison d'etre, yeah? Yeah, 100%, you know, and there's, there's, a, there's a reason, you know, that bicycle companies exist and that's to, of course, sell bicycles and, and parts within their marketplace. But, you know, there's also a, 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 a joint self-interest in these companies who compete every single day on selling their products in the marketplace to come together and say, you know, collectively, we have the power to grow the share of bicycling for for the U.S. And by acting in concert together and channeling those activities through people for bikes, we can grow the pie um, so that we all benefit. And that, I think that's a real testament of, you know, how businesses can um, function and work together towards a common goal while, um, you know, also advancing, you know, programs and projects that, create a better world for transportation, create a better world for our, the future of our planet and climate change, create a better world related to issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion within our cities and our governance. And so it's a, it, it's a, real, um, it's a real honor to be able to work for an organization that uh, has this breadth of support and leadership. 
Absolutely. Now, let, let's let's ground you both in that. Uh, let's work out where you are speaking from. And then you can tell me your official job titles. And then we'll get into what we're going to be talking about. So first, because we've heard from Carl already. So, Sarah, wh- wh- where are you speaking from? And what's your job title? I am speaking from Denver, Colorado. And I am the Director of Local Innovation. So I support our team that works across the country to support elected officials, city staff, and community partners and advocates to build complete bike networks. And you've been, you're not from Denver originally? I'm not from Denver. I moved around growing up, but previous to living in Denver, I lived in Memphis, Tennessee for a decade and, and worked um, through agriculture, creative placemaking, economic development, and as well as bikes to, to make the Memphis region better for the people that live there. And same question for Kyle. Where are you and what's your official job title, Kyle? Yeah, I'm talking to you today from Longmont, Colorado, um, just outside of the great bicycling city of Boulder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am the vice president of local innovation. And you know, like Sarah, um, we're leading work in cities across the U.S., helping community leaders there, um, giving them the tools and the resources that they need to advance the development of their bicycle networks, helping them do it faster than they would do it on their own, and helping them hopefully achieve uh, broader outcomes than, than they otherwise would have been able to do. And so we're we're strategically always looking for city-based partners to who are willing and able to make bicycling better. And we act as a, as a catalyst and a and a resource to help them overcome the challenge, any challenges that are standing in their way. So I don't mind who answers this one. You can either of you can 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 jump in here. Um, how many people uh, are working for for people for bikes, and is it everywhere? Is it like do you have like local chapters? What what what's the actual uh, setup? <laughs> That's a it's an evolving question in the pandemic times. Carlton. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. yeah, let's have it both kind of pandemic time yeah. and maybe normal times. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, we have a we have a staff of about 30 people working at People for Bikes full time now. Um, almost all of the staff um, are based in Colorado near our Boulder, Colorado headquarters. Um Aside from a few members of our staff that live in Washington, D.C., who manage all of our federal um, policy work um, with our um, with our partners in D.C. So almost everyone is, has been based in Colorado since the pandemic, though. Um, we've we've and we've had we've had several new hirings since the pandemic. Um, we've we've adjusted to a remote working environment and there's no there's no plans for us to return to the office, the office anytime soon. And so. I expect that we'll continue to work remotely from wherever we are in the world um, uh, for the for the foreseeable future. And this is this is a question that I could ask absolutely anybody, and I, I don't almost get roughly the same answer from everybody. But how's it affected how you're what you're able to do on the ground because you haven't been able to travel? Yeah, that's a really good question, and Sarah and I contemplated this quite a bit when the lockdown um, actually occurred. Because as Sarah mentioned a moment ago, she and I were just traveling nonstop for almost the last two years. And so how did we adjust? And I I would say that there's definitely some, there's definitely, there were definitely some growing pains that we had to work through. You know, there's, there's been some situations where I know that if we were in a place, in a meeting with somebody in a room, we could have solved some problems, you know, over the course of a couple of hours and been done with it. Whereas remotely, you know, it's several meetings over the span of a couple of weeks. So the, it, changing the expectations that, you know, communication just is more deliberate, takes more time was a, was a, was a lesson that we learned. And I'd, I'd say the other thing is that even though we've been working from home, um, the, the, the shared experience of our community partners who are experiencing the same exact thing has been really helpful is that, that they are also dealing with um, the pandemic and has made the relationship, you know, um, that we've been on, we've been on evil, e- equal playing fields, so to speak. And so we've, we've been, we've, we've found that the coordination with our local communities has just been about being more communicative, um, more frequently, um, and, um, 
the work work has work has surprisingly continued um, in many U.S. cities. And Sarah, talk me through bike boom. How has bike boom affected people for bikes? Well, you know, I think it's been just a really exciting time for the organization and, and the industry. And I think in particular, you know, through the role that Kyla and I have in terms of really looking at bike networks. And so how does the bike boom influence the way that our cities continue to be built and respond to residents' needs? And so it's been exciting to look across really the globe and see communities, you know, respond to, you know, more time during the, the day under shelter and in-place orders um, and kind of going outside their, their front door to experience uh, shared streets and car-free streets and places to walk and bike and play. Um, and then I'll let Kyle kind of talk more from the industry side on, on what we've seen from the bike boom perspective. Carlton, we're going to be releasing some new data in just a couple of weeks, but the high-level picture is that this past year, 10% of American adults engaged with bicycling in a brand new way. Um, you know, some portion of that were people who discovered bicycling, you know, after an extended period of time of not biking. So, for, you know, people who were absent from biking for more than a year. Another percentage of that were people who began biking in a different way because of the pandemic. So they might have tried indoor riding for the first time or uh, tried riding for transportation in order to reach, you know, the grocery store to reach a park or something like that. So 10, 10 of the Americans, you know, engaging with cycling is a, is a significant number of, of Americans who sort of stepped out their doors this year and, and took up biking. And what happened was that, you know, the response was people needed bicycles. They needed bicycle parts. Inventories became very low in bicycle shops. Um, city leaders saw, you know, swarms of people on bikes and then took action to help sort of, you know, create safe spaces for them to ride. So it's been this real, it's been this real um, uh, interesting perspective to see that the to see the power of grassroots movement, you know, largely unorganized, people acting organically, looking for ways to escape uh, their indoors, to get outside for stress relief, for health and recreation. You know, those are their primary motivations for taking up bicycling um, during this time. But then to sort of see the the spillover effect into what it's doing for the industry, what it's what it's changing in terms of perceptions for city leaders has has been a real um has been a real pleasure to to see unfold here in europe we've had what are called pop-up bike lanes so corona cyclways is, is is how they put it in in paris uh have you had that same kind of suck it and see initiative that was very much specific to the pandemic so these pop-up type you know you know, like um, instant uh, bike lanes that can just come down again if they have to. We documented that there was approximately 200 U.S. cities this year that changed the functionality and layout of their streets. Now, that's, that's a really broad way of sort of describing what happens. And that's purposeful because I, what I can't say is that we had a real sort of uniform approach to this you know, across all U.S. cities. We did have some cities that implemented pop-up bike infrastructure. Um, and some of those have moved to uh, a more permanent installation. I'm thinking Boston did a pop-up set of infrastructure, a whole network in their downtown area. Uh, and just recently in the last like three months, all of those orange cones and the, the traffic barrels that were used to create the pop-up infrastructure are now being painted permanent, uh, mm. permanent protected infrastructure is now being put in place to create that separation. Um, we had some other cities like Austin, Texas, who created some pop-up infrastructure on some really iconic streets. There's a, there's a street in Austin, Texas called South Congress Avenue, which leads to the state capitol building of Texas. Um, it crosses a bridge. It's been a project um, that has long concerned city leaders and city planners um, looking to make change. It's a big, it's a big iconic road 
that tourists and visitors and residents alike have to traverse every day. And the, and the pandemic gave them the impetus through order of the city council to to make that change. And that moved from permanent from temporary to permanent infrastructure this past year as well. I would say on, on the on the larger whole, though, Carlton, most U.S. cities um, who who did things did so with infrastructure that more tangentially benefited bicyclists rather than having a real direct lasting impact. You know, we, we, our cities closed a lot of streets um, to make room for outdoor dining and outdoor retail experiences. We, we closed residential streets except for through traffic, but we didn't have the sort of like wide scale pop-up bicycle networks go in. The, the last thing that I'll mention in, in this is that, what we did see happen was that communities in the U.S. that were already building bicycle networks did so at an accelerated rate. And so while we didn't have a lot of temporary bike networks going up, we saw continued progress on the existing momentum that was in place pre-pandemic continue to, to spill into even you know a, a time in which we might have expected projects to be delayed or derailed or unfunded. Um, we actually saw those networks going in at a faster pace. Um, they were able to accomplish that this past year. And, and Sarah and, and Kyle, I guess, for, for this, but uh, I've talked to you both before um, a wee while ago. And just anybody who's listening here thinking, Kyle and Sarah, I know those. Where do I know those names? Uh, so tell me why. Uh, and perhaps even when I talked to you before, and then what's happened to that particular podcast? So, Sarah, what, what, when, when did I speak to you last, and and wh- why was I talking to you? Kyle and I had a podcast that we started when we were both living in Memphis, Tennessee, called the Bike Nerd Podcast, where we really used it a little selfishly as a platform for Kyle and I to have amazing conversations with people around the globe not only in the biking space, but in mobility, health, public space, transportation, you know, people who are passionate about making the places they lived um, better. And we um, had over 100 episodes, and we actually have closed down shop with the Bike Nerds podcast, but have never released our final episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I absolutely agree with your, your sentiment about speaking to fantastic people from around the world, because that's what I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm yeah. talking to you guys, <laughs> of course. Uh, so so I'm inviting you on and, and you know, it's, it's like this, this in, a small incestuous world in many ways. However, you do speak to some amazing people who have got very similar goals uh, around the world. We may have different uh, geographical, geopolitical uh, issues to cope with, but we're pretty much going for the, the same thing, which is, in effect, getting more people uh, to, to ride bikes. Now, did any of uh, the bike nerd nerdery lead on to directly what you're doing now, Sarah? Yeah, that's a really great question, Carlton. You know, when Kyle and I began the podcast, I really had just entered into the bike space. I was part of launching a bike share program in Memphis, Tennessee. And so I was really in the in the role of, of learning and educating and making connections of, around great people who are encouraging folks to ride bikes. So it really kind of helped me from a personal and professional aspect, um, create really strong connections within the bike and mobility space and, you know, really helped me see the value of you know, not only creating space for people to ride bikes in your community, but also just like the joy and fun it is to ride a bike. Um, You know, bike share in particular, I think is really amazing in terms of creating that accessible opportunity for fun and joy and adventure um, around around a community. Now, Kyle, you you got in touch with me um, a little while ago, and it was actually a Forbes article I wrote, uh, which was talking about, you know, very small number of of Twitter users, any social media users can actually sway public opinion, mm-hmm. um, and and generally, it, it the way the, actually the, the piece was about was about in I think it was in London, and it was how just a small number of anti cycleway, uh, and it was called actually low traffic neighbourhoods. So LTNs is is the the the, the nerdery 
in the UK for, for that particular form of uh, transport I- I- intervention. So there were anti-LTN campaigners and uh, there was an analysis done showing that, you know, they were just talking to each other, but they had this enormous um, effect on 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 authority, thinking it was actually a massive uh, outpouring of public sentiment that actually it, it, it wasn't that at all. And then you got in touch and you said, well, we've actually done a study on this. So let's let's talk about why you got in touch. What, what, why did that particular uh, issue ring your bell? Carlton, one of, I mentioned before that some of the work that Sarah and I do in cities is, is helping cities overcome challenges to implementing their bicycle networks. And as we've been, had our, had our feet and hands on the ground in communities across the U.S., we were, we've been finding that over the years, it's that the challenges that cities face are less and less about the availability of public funding to, to build infrastructure. Um, we're seeing less concern about design and how to sort of approach building infrastructure that's attractive for people of all ages and abilities. The concern continually sort of continued to grow to be, wow, we're ready to go with this. But every time that we go out to build a project, there's a vociferous opposition to any changes to our to our public streets. And that opposition um, and every in almost every instance is either reshaping a project, uh, you know, to the detriment of you know the the goals that we've set out for the for the project itself. We're, we're compromising on design. We're compromising on the limits and the implementation of it. Or some in some in some of the worst case scenarios, projects were being canceled outright. And so we looked at, we looked into this with with a, using a study to understand you know our communities who. If you think about what it takes to get to a point where you're about to build a project, you know, there's typically work being done to build some community, community support around a plan, identifying you. Think about all the meetings we go to where we draw lines on a map and we think and envision about the future. How are, what's the disconnect between this exercise where we engage community members and visions about the future? And then when we actually go to, to deliver on those projects, um, where does all that opposition pop up from and why is it so influential? And we said, well, are the American people actually against bicycling and bike infrastructure? And, you know, and we didn't think so um, based on some local surveys that we had seen from cities around the U.S. But we conducted a study in 2018 um, to look at very specifically how people view bicycling, how they view mobility, and more importantly, to dive into an understanding of what drives people to make the mobility choices that, that they make every day. It's, it's our belief that to build the safe networks of protected bicycle lanes, low traffic streets, the kinds of infrastructure that we want to see flourish in our communities, that we can't just be speaking to cyclists and, and building support through cyclists, but, but that we also have to build support for these programs from people who may never ride a bike or who haven't ridden a bike, they're the they're the individuals that um, are uh, to to use like a political term. You know, they're the swing vote um, a lot of times in our communities, and we wanted to make sure through a research based approach that we were able to talk with them, communicate to them in a way that encouraged them to support this work rather than um, discourage it with their city leaders. And how much of this this assumed popularity for bike infrastructure in the general population is an abstract thing. But then as soon as it becomes concrete, that's when the opposition comes in. And for instance, what I'm trying to say here is if you ask somebody, you know, do you want more bike infrastructure? And they tick or they say yes, that's one thing. But when you physically get down to the brass tacks and you actually get the work, people moving in and closing down parking spaces, you know, putting in concrete barriers, then it becomes in, in flesh. And then opposition would then come in because, well, I, I said I want the bike infrastructure, but not on my road. That is the central component of, of what the study found. Um, we found that in the US, overwhelmingly, uh, the population here supports cycling for all of the reasons that we know. People have very fond memories 
of bicycling as uh, as children. Even if they've even if they stopped long ago, they remember what it was like to the fun. They associate bicycling with being outside. They associate it with the freedom and moving around the neighborhood. They all have these amazing stories and generally speaking, have really positive sentiments to say, yeah, I support bicycling, but you're right. The moment we say, well, do you support bicycling? Even if it means um, taking the parking spot away from in front of your home, suddenly that, that majority of support for bicycling plummets. It's, it's a very weak support and the, almost, almost as soon as you put uh, a trade-off in front of people. Mm. Um, we we lose that the strength of, the, of that support to levels that we can't sustain. If you were gonna, if you're going to run as an elected official on these numbers, and you had a position that this this precipitous drop-off occurred, you would not run for election. You would not win very well. And and so, what we have to do with that is, I'm sorry, what. What we found is when we looked into like the, what what are those trade offs that trigger that drop, the the primary concern for people, as it relates to bike infrastructure, is that as they're making choices about transportation every day, what what drives a person to get into their car versus public transport or a bicycle or to walk, it really comes down to people want to control their schedule, and. We can, we can talk about the nuances of parking space versus travel lane versus diversion and speed. And all, all of those things boil down to individuals in the U.S. want to control their schedule. They want to walk out their door of their home with some sense of reliability and get to where they're going in the time frame that they think it takes to get there. And it, it also this this phenomenon is not just unique to bicycling. It also explains why traffic congestion or a crash that backs up traffic, you know, creates road rage within people because we've disrupted their primary motivation is this this control of their schedule. Currently, driving a car gives people the most control of their schedule in U.S. cities. Um, and bicycling, bicycling infrastructure is largely seen as an inconvenience to that. And that's, that's the real, um, that's the real communications barrier that we have to overcome. So Sarah, when, when people maybe say that they want bike infrastructure, could part of that being, I want bike infrastructure for my neighbor because that gets them out of their car and enables me to carry on going in my car or are there people out there who we don't know of as, 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 as cyclists? I'm, I'm using air quotes there, uh, who would get on on to bikes, and they are in favor of, of bike infrastructure. Yeah, Carlton, I think it's a combination of, you know, I also think there's the the motivation to have control of your schedule, you know, as, as Kyle kind of explained, is there. But I also think there's a motivation to live in a community that provides multiple options for people to get around. And so I think when we hear support for bike infrastructure for people that, you know, may never choose to ride, I think there's also a, a pride and a, a community sort of buy-in in terms of being supportive of the greater good, um, being supportive of potentially your neighbor riding a bike. Maybe your um, your true motivation is to get them out of their car. Um, but um, you know, I think there's value in that. And then I think we know that when we build safe places for people to ride, um, you know, an individual that maybe was on the, I'm never in a million years going to get on my bike because it's dangerous, sees that a protected lane um, and a dedicated space for them on their bike um, creates a really great experience for their family. And so I think investment in infrastructure also, um, you know, creates investment in the people who may choose to purchase a bike and turn into a air quote cyclist. And I, either of you could answer this one because it, it, it's a, it's a general question really in that you're people for bikes. So clearly you're bikes, but so much of this, you know, to get people out of cars, is not obviously bikes. Not everybody's going to be able to get onto a bike. So how much do you interact with the other uh, ways of getting people out of cars. So how much do you get involved with transit? How much do you get involved with uh, pedestrian infrastructure, sidewalks? How much of that is absolutely uh, in your brief, even though in your title it says bikes? You know, when we look at cities that are most successful, 
they are not truly connected and truly investing into a single mode. So I think for us to really encourage people to ride bikes, we under we 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 understand at our core that you know we're never going to get every single American to ride a bike, but by increasing pedestrian space, increasing um, great safe transit stops and efficient bus bus um, schedules, we are also creating really great places for people to ride their bike and also choose choose other modes and. You know, the cities that we find to be really successful understand that and also, you know, build diverse partnerships and coalitions that involve housing, public health, pedestrian advocacy, et cetera. Um, and really the bike infrastructure, bike network is like one component of what makes that city um, um, really great and helps get people around. So tell me about the U.S. I mean, I, I know Colorado is absolutely uh, bike central and i mean you've overtaken quite a few years ago um uh, boulder overtook uh, davis california and and i know you were, you were those two cities were vying for quite a long time for being like the the the, the, the capital for for cycling in, in, in the usa has the fact that you're in colorado uh how much does that color your thinking in that when you go to to other cities it's much much tougher because you have kind of got it nailed in many uh, cities in Colorado compared to other places in the U.S.? Colorado compared to the U.S., other U.S. as a whole is better in some ways, but that there continues to be a lot of momentum building in other places that Colorado cities can learn a lot from. Um, and that I think that's a I think that's a real story that sort of exists throughout the U.S. is that there are pockets of real growth, real advancement in mobility. Um, and then there are areas that are totally devoid of it. And so I, I, I you know, it, it's interesting that Sarah and I um, have experienced Colorado this past year for the first time because of the pandemic in a really intense way. Um, but we, we, we are generally speaking, spending a lot of our time outside of Colorado, actually exploring the great things happening in, in other places. And I would say that having, we're now working, doing some work with some Colorado cities just in the last, uh, the last year, year and a half. And what's really fascinating about that is that we're actually taking some of the inspiration and case studies from our work in other cities. And we're bringing those back here to, to our, to our local partners um, in some ways. So I, you know, it, I would, I would say that, yeah, if you want to get on a mountain bike, if you want to like visit the city of Boulder and sort of see what they've done historically, I think I think there are some real jewels here. Don't get me wrong, but I would also just say that I think there's a, there's jewels elsewhere that are offering a level of inspiration to to even places here in the U.S. that have have succeeded historically. Broadening it out to the continent as a whole, if you if you include you know North America, uh, then you have Montreal. Um, right. which is phenomenal uh, uh, for bikes. And it has been, you know, roughly since the 1970s when they had uh, two very successful um, advocacy groups arguing for bike lanes and stuff to, to be put in there. So how close is the best American, best um, uh, US city compared to a stellar city, not stellar in Amsterdam, European terms, but stellar in, in North American terms. How close is any US city to, to Montreal? I would say, generally speaking, Carlton, we actually do an annual city ratings program where we do measure um, on a system, that, uh, using a system that we've created, we do, we do rank cities in terms of how, how, how great they are for bicycling. And we've just in the last year began measuring uh, some Canadian cities. We're actually, as we head into 2021, we're actually expanding the reach of the program into Canada, Australia, and some European cities for the first time. So, so coming soon, there's going to be a sort of a, a fuller answer to your question here. But I would say, generally speaking, a few of the Canadian cities uh, rank on par or slightly better than um, most of the cities for bicycling here in the U.S. And so I'm thinking Montreal, of course, 
Um, Vancouver is among those who, who mm. rank pretty high high in that list. And I'd, I'd even add in Toronto in terms of a, of, of a city that, given its size um, and sort of density or lack of density per se, is actually achieving some 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 uh, making some accomplishments for ridership that exceeds similarly you know positioned cities in the U.S. And so I I would I would project that some Canadian that the Canadian cities are right at the top of the pack for for all of North America and. Um, only the U.S.'s best cities are are on par with those. So, where are we talking about? Where, give, give me your your best ranked American cities. US yeah, cities. yeah. I'd mention, you know, you, obviously Boulder, Colorado is among those. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's where our, our office is located, but we uh, we use data, not a, not not subjectivity, <laughs> to make these rankings. Um, <laughs> You know, if we're looking thinking like cities that would be familiar with around the world, thinking Washington D.C. has has continued to sort of make constant, steady progress. Um, Denver, Colorado, here locally, is also a city that over the last decade or so has really improved, made some improvements. You, might, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, historically among the best in the U.S., um, continues to to rank really well. And then we're, we also have this this growing. Um, we also have this growing list of small to medium-sized cities that are really overperforming, given given the size of their city. And I'm, these are places like San Luis Obispo, California, Santa mm-hmm. Barbara, California, even a place like Missoula, Montana, or Rogers, Arkansas. You know, these these are these are communities that you would not automatically think to yourself, "Boy, bicycling heaven." Um, but they have really carved out um, a, a really strong niche in some of these smaller communities. You know, less than a, few, fewer than a hundred thousand people, um, and the, the rates of cycling happening there, the infrastructure being built, um, is really a testament to to the local leadership. And Sarah, you, you're you've got a, a, a new secretary of transportation coming up. Well, just in, in a matter of days, in fact. How much do you think? Having such a high profile, I mean, even I know the guy. How how, how do you think that's going to uh, affect uh, transport, not just uh, cycling, but transport uh, uh, as a whole in in the US? Can he transform something in 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 a relatively short space of time? Mayor Pete, uh, colloquially, like really understands that safety is needs to be a first priority with our transportation system. And so I do think from his role, you know, being a mayor of a local community that he understands that, you know, we need to invest in safe, comfortable, non-stressful types of transportation options, um, whether that's through transit, uh, bike infrastructure, pedestrian infrastructure, et cetera. And so I think that understanding of safety will, will help us make you know, strides that are not just, um, you know, paint on the street, but strides that actually encourage people to get out of their, um, get out of their cars. And then I think, you know, we need to have a really robust, um, you know, federal budget that's able to provide funding to states, and then those states to provide funding at a local level to, to really invest at a, at a high um, sort of, um, you know, budget perspective, to really ensure that we're able to build the bike bike networks in a in a quick and rapid way. I think what we've seen um, in U.S. communities is, you know, I think part of this vocal minority, this opposition we talked about earlier, is that you know a, a project idea, you know, comes forth and that project may not get implemented until five or seven or, or ten years down the line, and that's just entirely too long from a project delivery perspective. Mm. And then Kyle, the, roughly the same question. In that Mayor Pete is is going to be a, a in effect a progressive. Anybody's going to be a progressive after <laughs> after what you've had, of course. Um, but he's going to be a, a definitely a, a, an incredibly progressive progressive um, a, a, a transportation secretary. Um, but he is then got you know like a whole. It's just one man. He's a whole system here set against him almost. In that the whole of the <laughs> the U.S. economy. Is a is a gasoline uh, automotive based economy. So, how much can he genuinely change in in his short term? Well, I think you know simply by 
joining the administration. And I, I, I think there's been a number of roadblocks for the last four years just in moving progress forward at any any expected pace. And so I think simply by having some new leadership in place, we're actually going to see some things that have just been lingering you know, in the bureaucracy actually begin to make momentum. I actually find that the agencies who deal with transport at, at a national level in the U.S. certainly are rooted in a historical sort of automobile-driven mindset, but there's some really amazing people working with agencies that have a lot of initiative and a lot of really amazing program ideas for, for, for making U.S. transportation more sustainable and more relevant to the people living here. They just haven't been given the ability to unlock, you know, those, those programs for the last four years. They've largely been, uh, you know, working every day, but not really able to move an agenda forward. So I think simply by having uh, the new administration in place and uh, Mayor Pete um, leading the helm for transportation is simply we're just going to see some progress happening because we're going to be unlocking the potential of what's already there. I think after that, I think Sarah is right. You know, the the new secretary has experience working as a mayor in city. He understands the challenges and pitfalls that befall cities. You know, looking to receive federal funding, take advantage of these programs. He understands the intricacies of what it takes to deliver the projects, and I think he'll be able to offer some some renewed insight and some of the renewed commitment to uh, making transport uh, a broader part of community development. If I remember, under the Obama administration, you know, there was this monumental joint effort between. Uh, the Federal Highway Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the housing and ur- urban development areas of the U.S. So looking at how does transportation affect our climate change goals, how does that affect uh, the way in which our cities are developed and we provide housing affordably to citizens, residents, you know, that all came to a screeching halt um, under our current administration. And so I, I'm, I'm eager to see those kinds of conversations renewed because as Sarah mentioned, where we see real progress being made for bicycling, um, we're seeing bicycling exist as part of an ecosystem in also making progress for um you know, living wages being distributed across the city, wealth enhancement, affordable housing, environmental concerns, uh, public transportation success. Um, you know, I so I, I think I think that's that's what I'm most hopeful for is that we begin to see this broader conversation around how does transportation interact, affect, and be affected by um, these other um, these other societal and cultural issues that exist within cities. So. Here in the UK, and I'm sure it'll, it'll be in the, the, the same in, in the US, is transport ministers or transport um, mandarins, civil servants and politicians get very excited by electric cars, get very excited by e-scooters because they're new toys. They can play with these new things. Um, so, and, and, and bicycles and cars uh, a kind of old technology, you know, they're 120 years plus old. Um, so where do we see, because you are people for bikes, where do we see e-scooters fitting into, because we haven't even discussed them at all, but with this new toy, this the e-scooter uh, phenomenon, um, how much do you think uh, the bandwidth will be taken up by looking at these new things, at, but could that actually benefit the old technologies, the the, the bicycles of the world? You know, we have a program that we work on in partnership with NACTO, the National Association of Transportation. I'm going to butcher the acronym. Um, NACTO, the Mayor's Office of Philadelphia and People for Bikes, is part of the Better Bike Share Partnership. And this looks at, you know, how does micro mobility, e scooters, um, bike share, e bike share, et cetera, um, you know, how do we ensure that these new technologies and these new innovations are deployed and accessible in an equitable way um, in really North American cities. And so, you know, I think that, you know, these new innovations are providing increased opportunities for people to, you know, not choose to get in their car. And so I'm excited to kind of continue to see um, how e-scooters and micromobility in particular um, can just be another option, another you know tool in the toolbox for people to to get around their city, and then 
you know, I think this continued innovation and interest and electrification just provides more opportunity. I mean, I think the bike boom has, you know, seen during the pandemic that, you know, there's a hunger and an interest in e-bikes because, you know, you don't have to be like a world-class athlete to, to do some pretty epic mountain bike rides or just cruising around town on an e-bike. So I think it just provides just a ton of more accessibility opportunity for people. Kyle, you, there, there, was a, there was a definite a pregnant pause there. Um, I, I don't know if that was because you didn't know whether to, to uh, which of you wanted to come in and, and answer <laughs> that e-scooter thing. But did, what, what about your views on, on e-scooters? Yeah, I was I was just hoping Sarah would uh, take the lead on that. <laughs> uh, that's that's an old trick from our podcast days. Pregnant pause so we don't over talk each other. Um, I agree with everything Sarah said. And I, I'd maybe point to a more tangible example. I mentioned before some of the work that's happened recently in Austin, Texas, and before the pandemic, Austin, Texas was. Um, a North American center for e-scooter use, um, you know, registering, you know, when comparing e-scooters to the bike share, the public bike share system, e-scooters were, were being ridden on a daily basis, on a daily basis at a 10 X. So for every one trip being made on the bike share system, there were 10 trips being made on scooters. And it was a, it was a fascinating phenomenon to be in downtown Austin in in pre-pandemic times to at this peak of scooter use just to see the people that were willing to to get onto a scooter and you know thinking about it from that sense it was like swarms of locusts uh, in in some ways to sort of you know be hyperbolic about looking out at a street and seeing the people riding the scooters but when you looked at them they these weren't people you would sort of expect to be you know they weren't exclusively young you know, hip people riding to their tech job. It was families. It was uh, it was clearly older people. It was younger people. It was people of all shapes and sizes and ages and colors. And it was just a fascinating exercise to sort of look out and say, "Wow, you know, there's there's something to this." I think to what to what Sarah has to say is that, as far as we're concerned, um, you know anything that gets people out of their cars is a, is a real benefit for cities where what we're ultimately after here is not the, you know, propagation of bicycling as a singular mode of transportation. We don't want bicycling to become, you know, what, what the car is today. What we want I to do. do is, I do. <laughs> but, but what we really want though, is like, we want, uh, we want cleaner air. We want a better planet. We want a safer place for our children. We want, uh, we want all of these, these, these other benefits um, that come along with it and getting there uh, requires, you know, that we have some, some other options for people. And if that's a, if that's a scooter today and it's, you know, I've often joked that the next thing might be like an electric on street kayak. I mean, I, I don't know what's coming down the pipeline, uh, but, but I think as long as we're moving people out of their cars today, that's the real, that's the real strategy that we can put in place you know, there's certainly there's certainly things that we need to address as it relates to sort of you know the the rapid adoption of these of these new um, technologies. Um, they don't have the time tested you know sort of um, requirements. We we don't know how they're going to play out in the long run yet from a functionality standpoint, from a use standpoint. So it's all still really too new too new, I think, to make concrete judgments about it. But I think right now, if for no other reason, if you know, to come back to some of the original you know, purposes of talking here about how do we sort of reshape public opinion in terms of supporting bike infrastructure? Well, if somebody really loves to ride a scooter and I can get them to support building a bicycle lane, you know, that's, that's one more person uh, who is riding to their city councilors, riding to their mayors and their leaders saying, you know, thank you for creating this space for me to to ride that I don't have to interact with cars. And I ultimately think that's a good thing. So mobility lanes, maybe, rather than bike lanes. Yeah, I think so. I, I think, um, you know, we, we, we have a really, we, we need we need better marketing on how we're talking about this. But yeah, I think that's right. Low speed, low speed mobility lanes or lanes for, for individuals traveling less than 20 miles per hour. I, I think, you know that's that's the that's the concept. We haven't come up with a really catchy name for those yet, though. Mm. 
So I'm going to ask the, the, the same question to both of you. You actually might, you might come, I'll ask Sarah first and, and Sarah might come up with the absolutely perfect answer and Carl doesn't have to come on this and maybe Carl will actually enjoy the fact he doesn't have to come <laughs> on this. And this is not me just picking on you, Sarah, but it's just that you're kind of like, you're the next one in, in line to be asked the question. This is why I'm coming to you on this particular point. And it is potentially, uh, well, it is another difficult question. It's potentially another uh, political question in, in many ways. Um, but that is just bike lanes. So we have been talking about bike lanes, whether we want to call them mobility lanes, under 20 mile an hour, whatever we want to call them. How much is People for Bikes, your 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 outreach work, how much of it relies on either maintaining what you've already got in cities or expanding them? How important are bike lanes to, to your work? Bike lanes are an integral part of our work. You know, communities that... Again, when we look across the, the city and, and look at communities that are wanting to increase the amount of people who are making a decision not to drive their car, um, investment in um, bike lanes is kind of paramount, paramount as part of that solution. And so I think we're, we're actively supporting cities and city staff and elected officials, et cetera, in communities across the country to look at their bike network um, in, a, in a really sort of analytical and sort of hard way. We have a tool called our Bicycle Network Analysis that is able to, you know, really help a city not deem their bike network successful by the amount of miles they have installed. But, you know, are those miles that they've installed safe, comfortable, and accessible to as many residents as possible? And so we are constantly you know, encouraging and having discussions about, you know, not all bike lanes are created equal. There's always um, room for improvement. Um, there's always room to look at, you know, what our speed limits look like. Are there other traffic calming aspects? So um, I could, we could probably spend a, a whole nother 45 to 50 minutes talking about, you know, how important um, bike network and bike infrastructure and lanes are to, to the success of mobility. So, so I, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick at this one. I'm gonna keep on yeah, going. Uh, I'm gonna go for, for, I'm gonna go for Kyle now, though, because you've had your chance there, Sarah. And I'm gonna go okay. for Kyle. I'm gonna pick at it, Kyle. And that is, um, how much do you then potentially neglect the other things that can boost micromobility, uh, bicycling, whatever, if you focus on bike lanes, bike lanes, bike lanes, which you know, in many places, you need space. Space isn't always there. Um, there's good cost requirements. There are all sorts of things. And there are other measures that you can uh, take that sometimes, not always, but sometimes can have massive, massive uh, uh, upkicks for, for cycling. So so your elevator pitch on, on, on promoting bike lanes above all else, Kyle. I would say, I think you're right. There, there are other measures and there are other considerations that that we should make. However, I would say that none of our cities, this, this, I mean, maybe I'm speaking solely about the U.S. here. There are very few U.S. cities that have built enough infrastructure to see those other measures actually be successful in a in a really broad way. And so, so by that I mean. You know, we, if you go to any city in the U.S. and you ask them about their great cycling education program, they're going to, they're going to show you what they've been doing. They've been doing it since the 1950s and 60s when they began teaching kids to ride bikes, you know, through police departments. And at the end of the day, we'll look at sort of the growth of cycling as, as the expected outcome from all of this work. And we've seen cycling remain relatively flat in the U.S. for the last decade. Or if I ask a city, you know, what measures are you taking to, you know, grow ridership? And so, well, we have we have these riding events, we have these clubs, and we look at the trend line for cycling. We we see that cycling is still relatively flat. What we've what we've uncovered using this tool that Sarah mentioned, the bicycle network analysis, is that there's a point at which your 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 community needs to create a basic network of bike infrastructure that supports riding. And it's, it doesn't mean that every street has a bicycle lane or that every street is slowed to a point uh, where cars are driving 20 miles per hour. 
But in order for these safety programs, encouragement programs, bicycle commuting, tax incentives, uh, for those programs to 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 exponentially increase the number of people riding bicycles, you have to have the basic infrastructure in place to actually support it. It'd be it it's sort of the equivalent of this if uh, if in your community you wanted to um, get everybody to a, a grocery store um, and you built the grocery store in you know in a, in a, in a field uh, and then told them you know to to drive there they certainly could you know without 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 having roads they certainly could get there it, it would be an interesting experiment to sort of you know ask people to navigate a city with a lack of roads while driving in their car uh, you know similarly to how bicycles currently experience riding in cities today we could we definitely see that we could encourage them to do it we could create some programs that would help them navigate you know a roadless city to get to that grocery store we we'd see some adoption there but but if we built a road to get there, wow, we could suddenly get there very fast. Very, in, we wouldn't be con- inconvenienced by, you know, riding over a, a dirt or going around a tree or something like that. And that's what we have to create for bicycling. We we what we want to encourage with people for bikes is the more rapid expansion of these networks, so that these other programs, these other encouragement ideas, these other initiatives can actually have a foundation for their success. Rather than trying to create success um, in in a place where they lack that underlying support structure, at the end of the day, is that you know we want people to be comfortable riding their riding their bikes, and so infrastructure is the first step. So I, I would say, like, what we want to do is talk about infrastructure, 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 because we haven't even established that baseline level of comfort with people with our infrastructure network. From there, we can build into broader pieces of momentum. What's your argument? And this can be for Sarah, if you want to pitch in there first. What is your argument for when you put the bike lane in, you're successful, the city puts it in, either um, tactical urbanism, you know, like it's just like a soft one, like a pop-up first to to, to trial it, or they, they put a concrete one in straight away. And then it doesn't get used in the numbers that, you know, ticks those boxes for the local politician who went out on a limb to get this put in. How do you cope with low use of a cycle lane, of a, of a bike lane? How, how, do you, how do you explain that? How do you maybe uh, change that? I think kind of to, to go back to Kyle's grocery store in the middle of a field example, I think it's really looking at that new bike lane and can can anyone access it in a, in a safe way? Um, is it part of a full network that creates connections to, you know, the variety of places people want to go from their homes to work, to a park, to a grocery store? Um, and so I think really challenging that maybe the bike lane actually the construction wasn't a success because it didn't make those connections um, to look at it that way. Same question to Carl then, in that the, the, you know, the perfect is the enemy of good. So what, what Sarah was saying there is about, you know, is the network uh, up to scratch in effect? Well, shouldn't there therefore be an emphasis on on getting a smaller things put in place, smaller interventions put in place before you go for like a gold standard, you know, in inverted commas, bike lane? Because if it's a, if it, if it's a bike lane is put in, huge expense, and it doesn't have the, those network connections, as Sarah is saying, it's probably not going to get used. However, local politicians and, and perhaps local um, uh, officials as well, they want to put their name to sexy infrastructure, you know, a big road, a bridge, something they can cut the, the ribbon of. If you just put a few, like, in effect, boring bits of connectivity in that will actually, you know, just put a barrier in, say, on, on one road and it just enables people to to suddenly cycle more, but it's not sexy. So how do you how do you get around the fact that an awful lot of the things that are actually get people on bikes are phenomenally unsexy and nobody's really that interested in in putting their name to it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would 
I would concur with Sarah. A, a bike lane is only as good as what it helps people connect to. And you're absolutely right, Carlton. The, the, the way that cities have gone about building infrastructure has historically been in large capital investment projects that completely transform the street. You know, that it, it, we're building infrastructure that looks really great. It, it has, it's aesthetically pleasing. It probably accomplishes more than just adding bicycle lanes. It's also adding enhancements for pedestrians, public transport access. Um, you know, it's probably, you know, having tangential community benefits. It probably also took 10 years to build that thing. And at the end of the day, you're right. What happens is you, you get to the finish line, you cut the ribbon, you have the big scissors with the mayor on the street. And then you look around and you're like, well, where are all the bicyclists? We built this amazing piece of new infrastructure for them. Where are they all at? And I, I think what, what that, what that process misses is that fundamentally at the end of the day, people are making transportation decisions based on convenience, you know, monitoring their schedule, getting to the places they want to go. And in in the process of building up to this new piece of you know top top-notch latest innovation and in design and implementation, we've we've we lose the plot on wow, this bike lane goes for one mile and then it stops. And then it dumps back into the same mm. terrible road that it was before on either end. How are people reaching this bike lane? What where we've seen some success is, you know, the scale of the infrastructure. I think is is less important. You know that that there's different communities have different financial situations. They're able to afford different styles of infrastructure. Where where we've seen some real success, and we're working with some community partners, is in rethinking the nature of a bicycle infrastructure project. Not not to be a corridor but to be an entire network all at once. This, this is a model that we learned about, you know, that was used in Sevilla, Spain um, during their rapid implementation, you know, about a decade ago. And thinking about the bicycle network is the project that we should be pursuing. And so we've just, we've just been working, for example, with the city of New Orleans, Louisiana, who uh, this past year um, ran, successfully have implemented a project of implementing a network in one part of their city. It's 11 different corridors, it's protected bicycle lanes, green paint, the full nine, the full nine yards, uh, roadway reconstruction. But they took that, they took all 11 corridors. I think it's something like 14 or 15 miles in total. They took all of those to the community as a singular project. We're going to build them all start to finish. And as they went through the public engagement process, building support, block by block for that work, they weren't talking about just the change to this street in front of your business. They were certainly talking about how that street in front of your business connects to the next connects to the next neighborhood, connects to the next street, connects to the next part of the city, connects to the park. And they were able to lead a singular public engagement process during a pandemic and complete implementation all in uh, all, all last year by approaching it from this network perspective. And I, I actually think that is maybe the more important facet for city leaders to think about is that rather than spending a lot of time, a lot of money and a lot of energy on a, what are at the end of the day, pretty small scale projects from a connectivity standpoint is to expand the definition of, of your bicycle projects um, and get get something more out of your, of your work at the end of the day. You know, and then think about it. If, if I'm a bicyclist and I'm not sure how to get to this new bike lane that looks really great, but both sides of it are really dangerous. And your network is only as good as, you know, as, as the weakest link, the, the most dangerous mm-hmm. connection that it has. Imagine though, if I can go out to my new bicycle network in new Orleans and I can ride 14 miles and they're all interconnected. I can seamlessly go from one piece of the network to the other, onto the trails, onto the on street. I can get to the park that I wanted to get to. I want to stop and get some lunch at my favorite restaurant. I can do all of those things without ever leaving the bicycle network. I think that's the real um, opportunity before cities. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, Carl and Sarah, that's been absolutely fascinating. And it has been definitely nerdy. <laughs> bike nerdy so that, that's a good form of nerdy um, <laughs> so where can people who've been turned on by this and they, they like the, the nerdery 
where can they get in touch with you guys on social media? Well, you can find People for Bikes at uh, at People for Bikes on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and we, Sarah and I, still maintain uh, the Bike Nerd social media presence. Um, you'll find us most active on Twitter um, at the Bike Nerds Podcast. Thanks to Kyle Wagenschutz and Sarah Stoddard of People for Bikes for kicking off the Spokesman's roster of 2021 podcasts. I'm aiming to get the legend that is Gary Fisher on the next show. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.